Blog Talk Radio. Yeah, this is your boy, G-Ski Rocks. And this is going out to the lovely, lovely women of the world. I know sometimes you have to make a hard decision. But I want you to think about this. Uh, so how do you feel about our new 
name and our soon new look, and everything is going to be brand new. Well, I don't know what to say, but I like it. You have no complaints from me because it's awesome. Um, Well, before we get any further into the show, would you please read our scripture for us today? Absolutely. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19 says, I I have recorded this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life so that you and your seed might live. Dear Heavenly Father, in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, we thank you for new beginnings, new transition to True Life Fridays Radio here on True Life Radio Network, Lord God. For Father, we know that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And as you said in your word, no man comes unto you but and by through me being your son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, we thank you for a new beginning for True Life Fridays Radio and new, just a more powerful message that's going to impact and change lives. In the mighty name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. So be on the lookout in the future for a lot of very positive changes I think um, just take a minute to show you where this came from, why we are calling it True Life Fridays Radio instead of our old name, Pro-Life Fridays. It wasn't because we didn't like the name. It was because it hit me as a revelation almost. And I have to thank you and give a real kiss and thank you to Bridget Van Means from Thrive St. Louis. saying We as pro-lifers have to stay ahead of the PR game. And the way we message and the way we talk to people has to to evolve according to what people um, will respond to, to meet them where they are. And it hit me uh, like, I I don't know, I was was across the room, but it hit me like she just threw a tennis ball across the room and it hit me in the head. And I'm like, oh, wow, hey, that's for me. And... I came home that that day and I did some thinking and it was it was like it was like butter. Really. It was really like butter. Where I'm like, Wow, you know, we are already calling ourselves um on our network, the true radio network, because we're all about the truth. We're all about being real and that's where the name true comes from. And we're about life. So why don't we call it true life? Friday's radio, and it seemed to fit, and I have been excited about this ever since, so if you are listening to me right now, please visit our brand spanking new Facebook page, give us a like, it is True Life Friday's radio, that's T-R-U-L-I-F-E radio, and our Twitter account didn't have a change, so but please, if you are on Twitter, please join us at, at T 
TLF Radio. We would love to see you on our Twitter feed. Uh, send us a note and say you're there. And keep up to date with the show through Twitter and Facebook. I've got a really, really interesting story for you this week. Um, two, two of them that are very related, and you're going to like this, Thomas, because we get to show exactly the kind of uh, hoodwinking, I think, is the best way to say this, that right. people and that Planned Parenthood and its associated members like to put on people. So this is, let me set this up here. This is an interview that Cecile Richards, who is the president of, of uh, CEO of Planned Parenthood, gave on a, an international uh, television talk show. And you're going to love this because this reveals more about her than it has about anything uh, that Tight Lips Planned Parenthood has been about in the last couple of decades. And so listen to this. Can I ask you a philosophical question? Sure. So for you, when does life start? When does a human being become a human being? This is a, this is a question that I think will be debated through the centuries, and people, you know, people come down to very different uh, points of but view. But for that. you, what's, what's the point? It's, I mean, it is not something That's that true. I feel like is really part, part of this conversation. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, we work with women. I, I guess the way I'd really like to, to um, I think every woman has to make her own decision. What we do at Planned Parenthood is make sure that women have all their options uh, for health care mm -hmm. and that they have yeah. the option to um, have a healthy pregnancy. They have an uh, option to put a child up for adoption if they decide to carry a pregnancy to term, uh, or they have the, the right to make a decision to terminate a pregnancy. But wh why would it be so controversial to say, for you to say, when do you think life starts? Yeah. Well, Three. I don't know if it's controversial. I don't mm -hmm. know that it's really relevant to relevant to the to the conversation. But I mean, okay. for me, I'm a mother of three children. Um, mm -hmm. For me, life began when I delivered them. Um, they were part of. They they've been probably the most important thing in my life ever since. Hmm. That was Cecile Richards. Now I have to give a lot of credit for this talk show host to. Sit there with her and be so persistent. He had asked her three times the exact same question. And how many times did she answer the question? Zero. None. Zero times. He starts off asking her the question. And he frames it in a relative way. I mean, he wasn't very like, oh, I'm going to get in your face about this and ask you objectively, give me the scientific text of when life begins. He put it in her, put it to her, I'm sorry, as gently as he could by offering it. So when, according to you, according to Cecile Richards, when does life begin? Ducks it once, ducks it twice. And he insists, and I'm so thankful he doesn't let her get away. Because, you know, she doesn't want to answer the question. But he already delivered it to her in a, a subjective way, saying, according to you, Cecile, when does life begin? Time number three. 
And she finally has to say something. And this is what she says. Life for her children began when she delivered them. Life begins when I delivered my children. First she says, let me back up. First she says, that question isn't relevant. (laughs) That was the... To her credit, that was the nicest slap I've ever heard a person who supports abortion give an answer to a very straightforward question by a talk show host. She says, well, I don't really think that's relevant. And that's, that's the nicest, thing, nicest way I think anybody could have said it. But what's wrong with her answer? At least to me, it seems like his question makes all the difference. The answer to his question makes all the difference in the world. When does life begin? Because, why is this important? Because cannot name the time when a human person becomes a human person becomes existent in this world, is alive, then why, oh why, do you advocate and sell a procedure that ends the life of that person that has come into existence? So implicitly, we already know the answer. Abortion kills a living being, the very least, a living being. We haven't gone to the point of naming that that living being is a human being, but abortion kills a living being. If that living being weren't already alive, we wouldn't need to kill it by abortion, would we? Right. We already know that. Cecile Richards already knows that. Right. Because what is abortion? If if the child inside a womb that is going to become aborted is not alive, then why bother to abort? What are you aborting? If you're not aborting life, what is the baby doing in the womb if it's not living? When a woman miscarries and her child dies in the womb and she goes to, she has to go in a procedure to remove the dead baby, that's not an abortion. You don't, nobody calls it an abortion. Why? Because it's not an abortion. Well, duh. So when Cecile tries to finally duck the question for a third time, telling the host that it's not relevant, of course it's relevant. Of course it's relevant. It makes all the difference in the world. When there is no life, go ahead, flush the baby for all anyone cares because it's, it's not alive. But she goes on and says, for me, and she tries to qualify herself and give herself credibility by saying, I have three children. Well, that's very nice. I'm glad you didn't abort them. 
And I'm glad, I'm pretty sure they're glad you didn't abort them. But she says, for me, life begins when I began when I delivered them. And we talked right. about this. We talked about this last week. She apparently thinks that, uh, that children begin to exist at the point of birth. She's claiming that babies pop into the world uncaused, out of nothing, because obviously what was in the womb prior to birth is not the baby that gets born. So the question remains, remains that I asked last week, what is in the womb if it's not the child that is going to be born? Because obviously she is denying that that babies are, are created in the womb. Because what gets born is somehow this magical child that, that emerges somewhere seemingly through the birth canal, but it came into existence uh, at that time from nowhere. And that makes absolutely no logical sense. So where, to bridge from last week's commentary to this week's commentary, Planned Parenthood uh, is in a little bit of hot water again. Are they really not really because the government is still giving them millions of dollars? Uh, Warren giving them millions of dollars to abort children. I believe it was 40, right? He reported to have given Planned Parenthood $40 million uh, either last year or in the last fiscal year for the purpose of abortions. Isn't that nice? Yep. What a guy. What a guy. (laughs) To be fair, you know what? If, If Planned Parenthood is a private organization, that is the only way they should obtain their funds, is if people give it to them, not being fleeced from taxpayer funds through Congress, back to to Planned Parenthood as some kind of kickback for supporting one's presidential campaign. Oops, did I say that? Yeah. But you'll never, okay, but you'll never guess who busted the story that I'm about to talk to talk about he busted this story open not that it'll ever get anywhere past the mainstream media the story mm-hmm. I'm talking about um, here let me let me let me let me back up and say this I think we have become accustomed to the medical uh, device industry medical advances medical technology and procedures, we have become accustomed to improving over time, to, to them improving over time. So as, you know, as, as the study of cancer goes along, people have better treatments and better medications and better devices they can use to employ to, to combat cancer, right, than we did, say, 35 years ago. Same thing with right. a disease like diabetes or high blood pressure, or anything. We, have, we are constantly coming up with a battery of new medicines, uh, new treatments, new procedures. They're constantly trying to improve medical care for those in need. So we've caught, we, you know, especially living in America, where this is largely a free market enterprise, and people are driven to find cures or better treatments 
or to improve people's lives. Um, but one field in this arena, kind of like maybe a subfield or a sub 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 subfield, seems to be working backwards in time versus forwards like everybody else, backwards in time, the more innovative it gets. And that is the arena or the area of birth control. Have you noticed that in 50, 60, I don't know how old the birth control pill is now, uh, 70 years old? It is still the most common form of birth control. It is touted to be, if used properly, the most reliable form of birth control, yet the reliability in actual practice is very low. And why is that? Because women have to take a pill every day, and women often forget to take the pill every day. And in some cases, in, in some formulations, of uh, progesterone-only pills, uh, which I have some experience with, and I went off of them because I was like most most women, like I can't adhere to the schedule every day. You have to take them at the same time every day. So if you get up and it's 7.30 in the morning or 7 o'clock in the morning and you take your, and you go on this pill, you have to take it every day at the same time every day. Otherwise, the effectiveness won't be there. So in, in actual use, the birth control pill does not have the claimed effectiveness. It doesn't because women, through just living their lives, compromise its effectiveness all the time. It's just normal human everyday activity that compromises its effectiveness. So pharmaceutical companies are always trying to come up with the next best birth control method so that we can remove the human elements from it, uh, do away with human, uh, human forgetfulness, do away with errors, human errors, um, and, and make it easier so that women, I mean, the, this is the advertisement, women don't have to think about birth control for, except for once in a while, which we can keep up with. Okay, so that's the premise. Sounds great, doesn't it? Well, how many forms of birth control, and I know that we've talked about a couple of them, have we talked about here that have shown to have very serious negative consequences for women? We've talked about eShore coil that has been for thousands of women pretty debilitating, significantly debilitating, and that, that hasn't been recalled. We have talked about, in recent uh, weeks, Depo-Provera, another drug that has caused women terrible suffering, caused them health problems to really significant degrees. We're talking bone loss, liver damage, et cetera. A whole, a whole ministry, a whole organization has been set up, Rachel Project, 
to pursue a class action lawsuit against the pharmaceutical company that has produced it, I won't name them, in order to expose and to compensate women who have been injured by the use of Depo-Provera. Well, what joins them today? Nuvering. And if you've seen women out there, if you've seen your OBGYN in the last five to eight years, you probably saw Nuvering advertised in the waiting room, probably in the hallway to the examining room, in the examining room, and maybe your OB even suggested that you go on Nuvering. And what it is, it's a birth control device, just like Esure, well, it's not just like Esure, but like any implantable device inside a woman's body that, that uh, contains a, I want to say, uh, a supply of hormones that slowly releases itself into your body, into the human body, over time, uh, so that it takes the place of having to take a pill every day. Well, it is the latest, NuvaRing is the latest in failed birth control technology. Failed. And what you will find out about it should give every woman pause. So who, who broke this news? You will never guess. Vanity Fair. I know, right? So the, they wrote an article that is both scathing and crazy as heck because the woman who wrote this in Vanity Fair felt so strongly that it was dangerous that she wrote her daughter and said, don't you ever take this because it could kill you. What has happened with NuvaRing is uh, – that women were, it was never, first of all, NuvaRing was never tested in vivo, what we have come to understand, which means it was tested for, you know, its action at, at 68 to 77 degrees Fahrenheit. Yep. Uh, we'll get back, we'll get back to that in a minute and how that is uh, significant. From uh, LifeNews.com, who reported on this, it says, NuvaRing uses a third-generation progestin called desogestrel. It is here, and here's where Planned Parenthood comes into the picture. Here's what, what uh, the Vanity Fair article has to say about it. What were young women being told by their doctors? As part of my reporting, I, the author of the article, I asked two college students to go to clinics in New York, inquire about using NuvaRing, and detail their family's histories of heart issues. Planned Parenthood, with its distribution centers all over the country, sales market for NuvaRing. At a clinic clinic it operates in Brooklyn, one student mentioned to the attending nurse practitioner that she had Googled NuvaRing and was aware of the lawsuits. Lawsuits! Alleging that it can cause blood clots. I have a history of heart disease and diabetes in my family, she said. You yourself have a history of heart disease? The nurse practitioners asked. 
She said, no, but my father has it, and my mother has type 2 diabetes. <clears throat> red flag, red flag, red flag. Just letting you know. Both facts were indicators of potential problems, but the nurse practitioner did not seem to be alarmed. Then, no, she says, NuvaRing is safe for healthy young women. Of course, with all birth control methods, there are side effects. You seem a good candidate, though. Would you like to try it? Incidentally, Planned Parenthood was asked to comment about this article, and they responded that the Federation does not publicly discuss private patient matters. How convenient. By the direct quotes provided, it is clear that Vanity Fair investigator either audiotaped or videotaped her office visit, plus the author could, would not have relayed that to that conversation if she did not have corroboration. Meanwhile, according to Planned Parenthood, NuvaRing is awesome. Um, blood clots, not to be used for people with a family history of heart disease, diabetes, high blood pressure, stroke, etc. Because women who have had NuvaRing carry a 90% greater risk of something called venous thromboembolism, which is pretty much a busted blood vessel in the body with, with this device. What is the main problem with this? The name, um, a lawsuit, let me back, back up. One problem with NuvaRing is its potential to dispense, like I said, it, it, it supplies the body with the hormone. It dispenses spikes of hormones in uneven doses. So basically, this device in your body, in a woman's body, can release hormones in uncontrolled quantities into your bloodstream. Here's the catch. NuvaRing has never been tested outside a temperature range of 68 to 77 degrees, like I mentioned earlier. Why is that significant? Well, unless a woman's body temperature assumes room temperature, NuvaRing is not as effect is not effective as stated by the, the pharmaceutical literature that comes with it. Well, if a woman's body temperature assumes room temperature, then it would be unnecessary, let's just say, for her to have birth control in the first place. Ironic, isn't it? Oh, yes. Yes, it is. Now, here's the, now getting back to the Planned Parenthood connection. Planned Parenthood is pushing the sale of NuvaRing even though it's been shown to have these nasty side effects and being a, a unreliable and unreliable product that can cause a lot of health problems for women uh, and even be fatal. Just so you know, the same pharmaceutical company that produces NuvaRing also produces Depo Provera. You might want to file that one away. All right. 
Uh, we're going to take a quick break. You've been really quiet, Thomas. You want to say something? <laughs> I guess not. I think he muted himself. There's a lot of background uh, noise, and really, really, that's okay. We'll be right back for a light Friday. Your life Friday! We had a whole plan that sold abortions, and it was called sex education. Break down their natural modesty, separate them from their parents and their values, and become the sex expert in their life so they turn to us. When we would give them a low-dose birth control pill, they would get pregnant on or a defective condom. Our goal was three to five abortions from every girl between the ages of 13 and 18 multitudes of people that have been hurt by abortion. It's just unfathomable. That abortion is really, to me, the ultimate exploitation of women. It is so shameful and secretive that many women don't tell anybody that they've had an abortion. They won't say anything for 20, 30, 40, 55 years. They're so traumatized. Silence. U.S. Senate report states Physicians, biologists, and other scientists agree that conception marks the beginning of the life of a human being, a being that is alive and is a member of the human species. There is an overwhelming agreement on this point in countless medical, biological, and scientific writings. Planned Parenthood is expanding now. They're building gigantic abortion clinics in anticipation of socialized medicine. There's a lot of money involved. We never would take personal checks. We always encourage the ladies to bring cash. Why is that? So, well, you don't have to report cash, friend. When you're fighting for your life, you need to know what you're fighting for. And if what you're fighting for is life, how do you destroy a life in an effort to fight that fight? fighting so hard to save myself that I'll kill someone else to get that. I recognized I'd been involved in the death of 35,000 babies. And the truth has really come out about what abortion does to women, let alone the unborn baby, our dead babies. It will be over. Welcome back to Pro-Life. Whoops, I did it again. You know what? It's becoming a bad habit now. It was a joke at first. True Life Fridays Radio. Get it together, Letitia. But thank you for joining us uh, for another great, great broadcast. I'm on the air with my friend and wonderful co-host, Thomas Smith, who's enjoying a very sunny and very warm Florida, unlike where I am here. Well, Letitia, actually, it's cold and overcast. Cold and oh, windy and overcast. Oh, you poor thing. You poor, poor thing. 
Yeah. Don't you know 61 degrees <laughs> in Florida is cold? I am so glad you are so far away because I, if I were able to, I would reach over through the phone line and smack you. Uh, so, yeah, well. hot spring. <laughs> Oh, well, if the phone lines are open, people, let's let's get uh, this finally get started here. 760-542-3907 is the number to call if you have questions for our host and or for our wonderful guest that is coming up right now. Uh, on Monday, I got the chance to watch a debate over the abortion issue. And the question was, is abortion a human rights violation? And the reason I was so excited about this debate was it was held at my alma mater. I'm a Boilermaker, proud of it. I hear our guest, however, is not. (laughs) But that's okay. (laughs) And by that, I mean he comes from the other place. In in Indiana. Uh, Welcome to the program, Seth Jair from uh, created equal. Thank you, Letitia. I'm glad to be here. And yes, I am a Hoosier. Um, my <laughs> blood does not run Boilermaker colors, but I may be you no know, grand appearance at Purdue anyway. <laughs> well, I'm glad you were there uh, arguing for the right cause. Anyway. <laughs> On to more important things. Yes, that's right. Um, let me Let me first set this up a little bit. You are uh, from an organization called Created Equal. And tell us a little bit first about what Created Equal is, and then we'll get to uh, the debate where you were at. Absolutely. So Created Equal is a youth organization, a youth pro-life organization. We are preparing students to be pre-born defenders. You know, we um, in the pro-life movement have looked to many other movements and drawn uh, inspiration from them throughout the years, the civil rights movement and many others who are, we've seen a lot of people standing up and doing great things to benefit humans in need, their fellow brothers and sisters. And so we are trying to fashion pre-born defenders today who are willing to put their lives on the line like freedom writers did in the 1960s. Um, whether they were black or white, they were coming together to fight against racial segregation. And so we're trying to bring born humans together to fight uh, civilly and respectfully before the, our preborn brethren who are dying every day. And our goals to do that are to equip students with the very basic conversational skills, the tools, how to argue for the case for life, how to demonstrate the preborn are human beings, how to argue that their differences are irrelevant because uh, differences do not matter when it comes to our personhood, ought not to matter, I should say. And then we take them on the road, like tomorrow we're leaving to go to Florida where it's much warmer than here in Ohio. And we're going to go on the road from campus to campus with these students we've trained to stand on campuses and dialogue with, with students of today um, to ask very simply, what do you think about abortion? And they get engaged in loving dialogue using the tools they've been given to properly defend the case for life. We also um, are very persistent that in addition to us, the defenders for the preborn, the preborn victims themselves need a role in this battle. And so when we're out on campuses, we do um, have signs bearing the faces of babies growing in the womb and those who've been killed so that they can um, testify for themselves. Because when they are seen, uh, when the justice is visible, it is a lot harder to defend. And I have constantly, I've consistently seen when people come face-to-face with the victim, abortion becomes a reality for them. So we're equipping preborn defenders by bringing the tools of conversational skills and apologetics and matching that with 
images of the victims themselves to create a perfect storm of, um, of articulate uh, pre-war defenders who are able to change hearts and minds so one by one we can see babies be saved. Well, that's, that's great. And I, that sounded like you did it all in one breath, too. <laughs> <laughs> Have you gotten pushback from the use of uh, photographs of aborted children? Because I think that yes. has been, um, not to sidetrack to us too much, but that has been the hot, yeah. hot thing right now where people are accusing pro-life people of uh, showing graphic photos and, and somehow there's something wrong with that. Have you gotten pushback for that? That's an excellent question. Yes, we do um, occasionally receive pushback. I'll tell you, I, um, there are some great, I, I, we can receive pushback from all over, the, all over the realm, right, of course, because those who are working oh, to daily, yes, those who are working to protect the slaughter of the children, they do not want the images to be seen because they know that uh, in order to protect their industry, we need to keep it shrouded in darkness. But even on the, on the other side of the battle, it's, it's interesting because there are some people who realize that truth is truth. Uh, for example, at the debate on Monday, I quoted uh, feminist and abortion supporter Naomi Wolf, who in 1995, years ago, many years ago, wrote a New Republic article called Our Bodies, Our Souls, in which she said that pro-lifers, if they're showing us true images, we must accept because to denounce the truth is to be hypocritical. And so she had admitted that these images have a place, but that's, you know, the academic argument. What I hear on the street is there are people who think they may be counterproductive. But if we are going to take that track, we have to realize that we are not looking at the scope of history. The scope of history shows that every successful social reformer has directly exposed the injustice graphically, hearkening back to Thomas Clarkson and um, William Wilberforce when they fought against the slave trade. And they use line drawings of the slave, I'm sorry, the slave ship Brooke, showing how the, the slaves were packed into the ship. And that was a very disturbing image at that day. Right. Fast forward to America and in the uh, mid-20th century, fighting against the lynchings and racism, you had the shocking uh, moment when a young man named Emmett Till was killed. He was a 14-year-old boy who was killed in the South in the, in the 1950s. And when his image was seen, because his mother had an open casket funeral, and Jet Magazine right. actually published the photo in their magazine. Black America was moved. White America was moved because people suddenly saw lynching is not something happening to some boy far away or some girl far away. It was that young man I saw in that newspaper. That changed people's minds. It, Rosa Parks said it was her motivation to make her uh, infamous move on the bus because she said that she could not get Emmett's face out of her mind. And so clearly we see images have successfully launched movements in America, and even today, or not America, across the world even, and even today we've seen, you know, Time Magazine had a photo of a young girl with her nose cut off by the name of Aisha by the Taliban, because and the editor said it's important we show the reality of what is happening, even if it disturbs people. So what matters is not, is the image disturbing? We all know it is. What matters is, are these real images of abortion? And if they are, why would we want to hide it? The only way, the only people who will benefit from hiding abortion are those who are seeking to protect it and keep it legal in America. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Um, and for me, I've had, um, I've always been on the show, it's so easy to, to kind of broad brush this and show the images, uh, but I have had that type of discussion with very well-meaning people, people that I respect, mm -hmm. who are by no means, yes. by no means, 
uh, approving of abortion in any way, shape, or form. They are just as pro-life as I am, as anybody who is a, in, is a strong pro-life advocate. Um, say that um, you know something like this may damage children, or it's inappropriate for um, a public viewing, and especially when we talk about you know very, very public showing of 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 photographs. Um, I have a friend that works for Justice for All that, you know, they come and they do these campus outreaches where they have these gigantic placards. And I don't know how you get something printed so big, but it's so big you can't miss it, and that's the point, <laughs> uh, to, so that nobody can avoid right. seeing it. And I get a lot of, I get a lot of um, just uh, head shaking. Like, I don't know if that's, really the way to approach people about about the abortion issue um, and sometimes I have difficulty justifying well you know it's not forcing people to look at it as if you are you are doing them harm but a lot of people kind of look at that and say if you don't give people if you don't turn the poster around I guess and have, make them walk around to see it um, then that somehow it's taking away their free will to choose to see it or not to see it. Hmm. And that, that is interesting. And I will say that we as an organization, we don't target children. I have, honestly, myself, we do go to college campuses, downtown squares that are places typified by adults who are in the marketplace of ideas, but there is occasionally on campus a parent with their child walking by. Mm -hmm. And my experience has been that I have never seen a child traumatized by an abortion photo. I have only seen children traumatized whenever their parents become very angry and are yelling at me, and they're scared because mm -hmm. mommy and daddy are mad, and that's scary to them. But that being said, again, we do not target children. But I, I would just, just a, a food for thought to give to someone is that whenever we are going to weigh the certain death, pre-born babies against the possible hurt feelings of born babies, I have to go with life and death, and that's why I will go to college campuses even though some child may be there. Again, we take our efforts not to. We don't go to elementary schools, places typified of children. We are being, being right, careful right. there, but some children will still see it, and so that's why we still we still go. Okay, cool. Uh, let's get into the debate. Um, here sure. was an exchange where you were able to cross-examine uh, Dr. Ralph Webb. That was the that was the professor of communications from Purdue, who was your debate opponent, uh, and he it was after his first. Uh, presentation or first talk, and you got to ask him a couple of questions. I'm going to play a clip, and I have to apologize to the audience that I could not get it any clearer than this, uh, but here we go. It's, it's uh, a couple of questions, and then I want to ask you about a little bit about what he said. Human, is it wrong to kill innocent human beings who have a right not to be killed? I agree with that, too. You have a right not to be killed if you are a human. So is that a natural right to human soul? What? Do they have a right not to be killed without justification? Human beings. Okay, so transitioning, um, you can be sexist wrong. Yes. Why? Because it is positions one of the prevailing sexes where we talk about sex. And it positions one of them in a superior position over the other. Okay. All right. Um, what is the difference between born and pre-born? 
justify killing one but not the other? Because one is a human and the other isn't. Okay. And we're not talking about pre-born of all types, shapes, and sizes. Pre-born goes from those 22 hours of the embryo development um, to the day before the uh, developed uh, embryo comes out of the womb. Okay. One is closer to being a human being than the other. Through the sheet again, do you think all human beings are persons? All human beings are persons, yes. Do you, um, how would you define a person? The way I've been talking about it here, a person is uh, some living organism with uh, a sense of consciousness, a sense of personness. Okay. Yep. Not established at the point of conception, established somewhere along the line. Okay, so this would you agree that some things are true for all people at all times? Like sex trafficking is wrong. Is that true for all people at all times or only some cultures? Some cultures. Okay. Um, we're going to stop there because most of his answers after that kind of go along the very last thing he said. So let's go back. And you had asked him this series of questions uh, as to killing the innocent, sexism, and his answers were, for the most part, objective. Yes. Shockingly, <laughs> right? Is, so I is, just re-listening to I'm shocked at what I heard it? again. <laughs> so tell me what was going through your mind when first he affirms that sexism is wrong. To be honest, what was going through my mind was, wait, are we on the exact same page? Why are we debating each other? Then, of course, I was about to, um, I mean, that, this was after his opening remarks. So I was confused because the case he had laid out was different than now the answers I was getting from him. So I was very frustrated in my, in my mind trying to, dis, trying to find out where the point of disagreement was. But, I, but what, what is so odd here is that this is not unusual. He was affirming things we would affirm. Racism is wrong. It's wrong to kill in human beings. Are all humans persons? Yes. But there is still a point there, eventually we got to it, where he says consciousness. That's where he draws his line of prejudice. If you are not conscious, you are not a person. But it took a while to find that, and that can be what's so hard because, you know, people want to affirm what we say. It's wrong to kill innocent humans. Everyone wants to agree with that, but they still have this prejudice against humans that are not conscious or humans that are inside the womb. There's a level of prejudice there, and it takes a while to find it. Right. What I gathered was he had then defined uh, in order to make, because you asked him up until the end, so when is sex trafficking okay? <laughs> and he had given his outline uh, when it is done against a human being and a human person. And so by that, I'm inferring that he does not count the unborn child in the womb as a human person or a human being. Right. You're exactly right. And that's just so shocking, though, because then when he asked, he was saying a person or a human is a living organism, again, referring to things that are objective. And so that's, that's what's so confusing. We play this double speak, and, and he was equivocating on the word human. So he would admit mm-hmm. that there are humans in the womb, but they're not persons. He, would, he wouldn't use the word person. He used the word human life, distinguish between human and human life. 
But that's what's so dangerous because this isn't a new battle. We distinguish human and human life, humans and persons based on color, sex, authority. That's nothing new, right? And that's what, what a danger does life. We ever define person as something subjective rather than objective, people will get left out. And that's what happened in the debate. He's leaving people out of the equation. Yes. Um, he, he goes on later on the debate to say who has the right, therefore, to an abortion. Because he goes, on, he goes on, really, and says very clearly that truth is relative and, yes. therefore, moral decisions are relative, and then asks the question, well, then who has the right to decide um, to have an abortion? He says the woman does. <laughs> um <laughs> But he Where does doesn't get that right? acknowledge that even right. He doesn't acknowledge that even the woman has a natural right. So I'm wondering, and maybe if you had talked to him before or afterward, where does a woman's right to abortion come from? Well, that is the question that he needs to answer. That is exactly you hit it on the nose there, Letitia, because he very clearly stated there are no universal human rights. Oh, except the right to choose. But that doesn't make sense. If there are no universal rights, he has not only undercut the preborn natural right to life, but everyone's rights whatsoever, the right to life, the right to choose something, the right not to be prosecuted without a fair trial. He undercut all of those. In order to be consistent with his position, he made outrageous claims, um, quite provocative claims like that about sex trafficking mm-hmm. and about no human rights. There is no right to choose abortion. Hadley Argus makes this point so eloquently in his book, Natural Rights and the Right to Choose, that if there are no natural rights, that means there are no natural rights, period, not merely the right to life. So they lose their argument for the right to abortion. It just doesn't exist in an objective sense. And Right. That's what I heard him kind of contradict himself uh, in in the most fundamental way. Uh, But not only that, I think he went further on to say that um, if since since truth is truth is relative, and calling your position, our position, the pro-life position, ethnocentric, that kind of <laughs> raised the hair on my head. I was like, what? <laughs> what did, how did you? What went through your mind when he said that? Well, if it's ethnocentric to oppose sex trafficking or to oppose dismembering humans in the womb. I'll take the term ethnocentrism if he wants to throw that at me. But this is the, the confusion. Again, he is defining morality by culture and saying truth is relative to your culture, to your time, to your era. And so for us to say our views, our views against slavery or sex trafficking or abortion, to say those are normative for all people at all times, and his view is to elevate our culture above all others. But I think that is what we do all the time. When in, the Nuremberg, in the Nuremberg trials, whenever the other countries' allies enforce themselves, enforce their views upon the Germans in the Nuremberg trials, making them face punishment for what they had done in the Holocaust, the Germans said, wait, we have our own culture. We have our own morality. You can't do this. But we, the allies recognized and said there are universal principles of right and wrong that judge all of us. And so, again, we see this just this, this tangle of worldviews. His being there is no right and wrong. Everyone gets to decide. We are saying there are objective principles that, that direct all of us. And so right. what is so odd, though, is I do think that if someone came, if someone were to, uh, you know, approach Dr. Webb on the street and steal his wallet, for example, he would be opposed. 
not just because they're doing that crime in America, but he'd be opposed if he were over in some other country where they didn't have the same laws we have here. I believe he would recognize himself there are universal principles of right and wrong, even though his worldview does not allow for it. Because, for example, he did. He said it's, it's right that they have the right to choose. Well, that only works in a worldview where there are universal principles. Again, he was cutting himself off at the knees. Right, right. And overall, I had heard him say that uh, if if this worldview that he has, um, it's that everything is relative, everything is subjective, morality is is relative to the culture and the person, except that um, except mine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Except the one that they I'm trying to play by their own rules. Right, uh, and. And so I want to go off with the couple minutes that we have left and ask you about who was who was in attendance that night. How many people were able to see this debate? Oh, that's a great question. And I um, I have I'm trying to think. I saw the stats were posted by a couple different people coming in with some different stats. And the crowd there we had, I believe um, we had about 230 watching live stream, and um, that would be. I'm sorry, I'm giving you the wrong number. I believe we had about two or 300 in the, in the present that night and between four and 500 live streamers. So um, this is our first time uh, doing a live stream debate. The Purdue Students for Life, who are the hosts of the event, had the idea to do a live stream, and we were able to investigate the technology, and um, it worked well. There were some glitches. We'll do better next time. But, um, so we had the people present and those um, on the live stream. And the live stream was not just America. They had viewers in Ireland and other places in Europe. So we were able to get a pretty broad viewership, even though the numbers themselves maybe weren't as big as we would hope they would be someday. Wow. That's, I think to get that kind of numbers for the first time going out is fabulous. Um, yeah. I think there was – I think that um, – do you think – is this, this is not your first time debating this issue, is it? No, um, this is actually this was my second formal debate um, with a professor. Okay. Uh, last year I was at DePaul University with Dr. Jeff Klinger. Okay, very nice. I wanted, to, I would like to know if, um, if the, if you think that the pro-choice side, just to be generous, I'll say pro-choice, uh, would <laughs> be willing to send somebody with, I, I think, a more of a legal mind to this. I'm, I had heard a lot of complaints that Pro- Professor Webb was probably not the best representative of mm-hmm. the pro-choice side. And I'm wondering if the pro-choice side would be willing to put somebody up to debate, either you or somebody else from Created Equal, uh, and really try to make a case, because I really don't think Dr. Webb did a very good job. <laughs> yeah, this is the funny. <laughs> this is the funny thing. And the student group, um, Jonathan and his team, Jonathan's the president, they have received flack from people saying, you chose someone great for the pro-life side and, and not someone who knew how to present the pro-choice side. What they don't know is that Jonathan knocked on every door at Purdue, women's studies department. He went door to door asking people, sending emails, and, and appealing for someone to give an objective case. They even had my debate from last year to watch. But ahead of time, I, he gave it to Dr. Webb so he could prepare better um, so the odd thing is that with, I had the same case last year at DePaul that I had at Purdue. The student presidents go to all the departments looking for any professor with expertise, and they all say no. And so in both debates, both Dr. Webb and Dr. Klinger began by saying, I didn't really want to do this. It's not my interest. 
but I felt I had to do it. And they both began with that disclaimer in order to lower the bar, which is fair. I understand that. But that, to me, is evidence that they, there is a reluctance to debate. There's a reluctance to defend our, their, their position. For one, I think it's because it's indefensible, and they see there is this uprising of we have good apologetics, good skills, know how to present our case, and um, they are perhaps interested in tangling with that. But also, they do have the status quo. Abortion is legal. We're the ones trying to change the law, so they don't have the same burden to defend themselves in the public mm. square. But as, as, far, as long as we keep doing it and doing it and doing it, maybe they'll eventually realize, hey, we need to start getting out there and giving a case, a better case, too. Leticia, I agree, I totally. Leticia. Yes, Thomas. I have been sitting quietly with my hand raised, and you've been ignoring me. I'm just kidding. I'm just messing with you. Um, I, have I can't accomplished. see you from Florida. I'm sorry. I <laughs> know. Oh, Y'all in that I'm cold perfect. weather. Sucks to be me. Anyway, um, I love the guest. What is our guest's name again? My name is Seth Dreyer. Huh? Was was that again? I'm sorry. My little brother is really upset. <laughs> little Go brother. Go on, Thomas. <laughs> anyway, um, my com- my comment to this because that it sounds like the distinguished professor wasn't too prepared for anything. So you know that they you know what they say those who can do and those that don't don't teach. But anyway, that's a whole nother story. Uh my my point to something that you made earlier about how some people get upset over, you know, the showing of graphic pictures of babies and stuff like that. But nobody ever seems to bring up what about the fact that the supporters of uh, abortion last presidential election were protesting dressed up as female genitalia. I mean, that's so, that's okay, but we show graphic truth and suddenly they're appalled. How dare you show that? Oh, well, how can you say anything? You were dressed like a you were dressed like a a woman's private parts degrading women, talking about we're for women's rights and you're marching around through the streets looking stupid. My and my, my point my point is saying that is this you know, there is a way that we could actually with the truth we can actually be brutal in telling the truth of our message. And the way we do that is we have to get back to the roots. And it sounds like you you were uh it sounds like that you were up that you were up on the roots of Planned Parenthood in their targeting specifically of our community, of the black community and other minority communities. But for whatever reason, the pro-life movement, they're afraid to walk that slippery slope for fear that it'll turn some off on our side. But here's the truth of the matter. I mean, Letitia talks this all the time. If we really want to destroy this debate and really put it back on what the root 
cause and their whole tactics are. We need to talk about that because they have succeeded in in bringing the black population's birth rate to the point where we're no longer even sustaining ourselves. More people die than are born in our community every year. So we were the experiment, Planned Parenthood, and other, the rest of the industry succeeded. So now what do we, what do we go, where do we go from there? That is the moral dilemma, not just the babies across the board, but it's the fact that they specifically targeted people that they found less or found less than desirable, as, as uh, some have said. Mm. And, you know, what do we do? We have, that's a message that needs to be put in their face to the point where we shut them up. They have these cold words that they like to say that, you know, in we as we as pro-lifers, we start shaking in our boots when they say these certain cold words. But when do we use the brutal, honest truth, like like you do with the pictures? That's awesome. Sure. But we but we got to get down to brass tacks. What do you think about that? Or is that too extreme? You're asking What's my you opinion. Think? I think that I think we need to show the unvarnished truth and talk about the unvarnished truth and and make make it known the Negro project that Margaret Sanger had to uh, to exterminate African Americans and make it known when they're in um, planting their their clinics in places with lower socioeconomical uh, demographics or to prey upon those who are in their opinion quote unquote undesirable. That truth right. must be stated. I'm full. I'm in full support of that, and we firmly believe in sharing that truth too. So I'm I'm with you there. I I appreciate that because you know I've ran into um, some comments that were made. Oh, we can't focus on that because it might deter some of our supporters. Well, if your supporters will be um, deterred by the truth, why are they even a part of this movement? You know, because right. we have to right. we have to represent life across all spectrum. And yes, the unborn baby. And I was just thinking about this today. I was thinking about the numbers. Fifty, you know, you take fifty-five million. Well, they say fifty-six million, and and let's just say half that number was women. So twenty-six million babies. And as you know, each woman has the potential to have over a hundred thousand babies. So if you really want to get brutally honest with numbers, you take. 26-plus million women, uh, baby, female babies that were aborted, multiply that times 100,000, and that's the number of people that you don't have in this world. And that doesn't even take into consideration the number of uh, potential babies from the male side through the millions of male sperm cells. So, I mean, mm-hmm. if people want to be really brutally honest and talk about the graphic numbers and that's the term I call that's the term I coined this morning. I was like thinking about it in graphic terms of the numbers. We could really just slam it in our face and I'm actually going to do the statistics and figure out the math problems, what the total number would be approximately and I'm gonna share that because I want people to really know the full impact 
on what abortion has done to this nation and this entire world. So, Well, thanks, Thomas. Um, I, I would really be very willing to see what you have come up with. Um, but we need to take a break. <laughs> and thank you for a uh, wonderful interview, Seth. Uh, please come back again. I I love have loved every guest that we've had on True Life Fridays Radio, and I want to see you come back. Thank you, Alicia. God bless. Yes, All right. Have you. a good evening. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, when we come back from our break, which is in just a few moments, uh, we will have Annalyn Megason. She is from Hope After Rape Conception. She has a fabulous story and help us deal with another very important question that is out there in the media and is being used against people who are pro-life uh, that are running for office even. So uh, be right back. If you have a question, please call 760-542-3907. Our lines are open. True Life Fridays Radio is sponsored by our new friend in the pro-life community, the business that everybody really, really ought to get to know, Lifeboat Coffee Company. We had an interview with CEO and executive John Lillis last week. You can catch the archive of that show on True Life Fridays Radio. Uh, And if you are looking for a real product that is truly cruelty-free, and something that you can drink with confidence, try Lifeboat Coffee. It is something that you will not regret having to support because 10% of their earnings will go to a pro-life charity of your choice. So give Lifeboat Coffee at lifeboatcoffee.com a chance. With us on air right now is Annalyn Negason. Annalyn has a wonderful story that everybody needs to hear, and I don't care if we have a hundred or a thousand or ten thousand women that come through our story. Every story is unique and powerful and important because it shows us that our culture is rapidly and consistently devaluing uh, victims of violence and their children. And something needs to be done about that. Welcome to the program, Annalyn. Thank you, Leticia. How are you? you? All right. Wonderful. I'm doing great. How are you today? Thank you. How are you doing? Good. I heard your story through um, through a another radio interview that you had sent to me, and where the the interview there had asked you just a lot of questions about um, the birth of your daughter and. Um, your personal history. Can you really quickly tell us what brought you to this point um, where now you are helping and advocating for those mothers who have had children through rape conception? Yes, that's what we're doing um, to try to change change people's uh, views and, and attitudes and minds and hearts about it uh, as well. One, one of the things that's difficult is there's a lot of... Uh, preconceived ideas and myths about women who are raped um, that they would not choose to have a child or raise their child. Because of that, uh, some states 
don't offer any legal protection for mothers that choose to have their child and raise their child on the road, or they want to get their child for adoption. Um, there are some states that have some legal protection, some states that have no protection uh, in those scenarios from the rapist seeking parental rights or any custody or visitation uh, through the nature of being a biological father. Uh, one of the things we try to do is help provide uh, support and encouragement as well as get the laws changed so people will see that there can be legal protections in place. Um, these are mothers and these are children that do have value and they're worth it. There's no reason that they should be treated unequally under the law compared to others. What has, um, tell, so tell me a little bit about how you've gotten to this point, your personal story. Well, I was raped uh, years ago and I ended up becoming, uh, finding out after the attack that I had become pregnant as a result of the attack and I did go ahead and choose to have my child to raise my child myself. Um, and this happened in a place where, you know, I was in Louisiana and there was legal protection in place there where I did not have, um, even though there's retaliation, he attacked me after I was cooperating with the prosecution to try to get me to drop the case against him, um, even while mm -hmm. I was pregnant. Um, fortunately, was able to survive that as, as my child was as well. And uh, then moving to another state and reside now in Florida, there was no legal protection in place at all. I thought that the laws in Louisiana, because everything occurred there, would keep us safe. We didn't have to worry about any future interference um, right. from so, so this what man happened? who had raised what me. Happened? What happened what is happened? years later, he, he started to seek having visitation and custody rights in Florida because the fact that we wow. resided in Florida, there was no legal protection, um, tried to pursue that there. And, and what ended up happening is we got the law changed um, unanimously with bipartisan support where they can uh, terminate the parental rights of rapists in the state of Florida now. And now there's also a federal law going forward. Um, it's a House Bill uh, 2772 that is a Rape Survivors Child Custody Act to try to allow women to go forward with their choice to have their child, to parent their child without being chained to a man that rapes them. Or right, having a child right. chained to that as well. And how often does this happen? Because we, I, a personal friend of mine who is also part of Hope After Rape Conception is Angie Grog. And she might mm -hmm. just be listening tonight. Um, and she, and you know, what happened to her daughter was pretty, uh, very similar, where her rapist had tried to uh, get custody of the of their her son. And I would say it's her mm -hmm. son, not his. It's her son. Um, how yeah. often does this happen? Well, you have to remember that rape is about power and control. Uh, first right. of all, and it's one of the most invasive forms of abuse. It's the best way I can describe it is someone who hasn't had this experience, and there's a lot of people who have. It's about one in four uh, women will experience this in their lifetime. It feels like unfinished murder. Uh, I guess that's the best way I can describe mm -hmm. it to someone that hasn't had that experience. Okay, um, So it's about power and control. It's a very violent act. And what they do is they just it's another way to continue exercising that power and control to try to leverage uh, having a prosecution dropped against them if that is what they seek. But while they're trying to recover and heal, um, you're raising a child for 18 years until they're an adult, right? So it right. gives them this huge right. opportunity to interfere not only with your, your child's safety and well-being. I mean, what a way to terrorize somebody. It doesn't get more terrifying Absolutely. than that, especially with someone you love with all your heart. Right. But that's what so they do, do is they just pursue more of that opportunity for that. Right. Sorry, go um, ahead. So here's, here's, 
here's where I see a lot of people, even on the pro-life side of the aisle, um, because, you know, women can become pregnant through rape. And the, yeah. I guess the impulse, I think, to, to, because we sympathize and we feel the pain of women who have been raped, that the solution is, therefore, if she becomes pregnant, to end the life of that child. I have even heard pro-life, self-proclaimed pro-life people not understand why women would want to keep their children. Um, can you speak to yeah. that? Yes, absolutely, and I'm glad you brought that up because that was one thing I had to really struggle with was when I was pregnant and discovered that and, and, and decided to go forward with, you know, having my child, uh, the people who encouraged me to have an abortion, threatened me to have an abortion, uh, among other horrific things, whereas uh, where they all called themselves pro-life. Um, they were not mm-hmm. people who you would have expected. I mean, if they called themselves uh, pro-life, you know, that's a label that can uh, or cannot be changed, I guess, at whim. You can call yourself whatever label you want, partially pro-life, pro-choice, whatever it is. It doesn't matter when it has to do with yourself and your own child, what I went through there. Uh, it was pro-life people, uh, by naming themselves that, who encouraged me to have an abortion and tried to push me to just not take care of things and just have a miscarriage, let it be God's will, um, not take care of my pregnancy and take progesterone. I needed to sustain my pregnancy um, through the traumas I had to go through with uh, repeated retaliation from my rapist. Um, it was also people who called themselves uh, pro-choice who supported my choice to go forward with having my child help me with any maternity clothes or encouragement that I needed. So um, I think what we have to do is, is step back and look at this oh. as an opportunity for some common ground uh, to move forward. It would allow people to choose to have their child um, and have that child live free of any of that fear and terror as well as the mother from being chained to a rapist. If you can go forward with passing laws that would allow that freedom for them to be equal to any other mother, any other parent that wants to raise their child in peace. Right. Um, I need to let our audience know that your pregnancy with your daughter was a very difficult one, and there were times where you weren't sure whether you or your daughter was were going to live. Right. I had a repeat <laughs> so, attack what, from the uh, – I had been fighting for a right. life, you know, in my own the whole time, um, the time that I had – found out, oh, okay, I'm having a baby, I'm going to be a mom, wow, I can't believe this is amazing, right. um, miraculous, really, and, and my feeling of the whole thing is just such a blessing uh, on so many levels and continues to be. Uh, what was shocking was, wow. yeah, another time he broke into my house to try to get me to drop the case and, you know, ended up, mm. police came out after that. I had to climb out of my roof after he threatened me with a gun again to escape oh, while I'm pregnant with my daughter so that, you know, uh, I couldn't drop the case. I was not the state of Louisiana, so whatever. Um, right. But it was still, it was pro, uh, so-called pro-life people that pressured me to have an abortion or encouraged me, even as my as my belly would grow even further, you know, it's okay, it's still wow. legal, you can still do it. And I just really wow. didn't want to have anything to do with those individuals after a time. And I was very fortunate that wonderful people came alongside me that respected uh, my decision and treated uh, myself and my child just like people. They weren't um, treated in some kind of marginalized way. Uh, from going forward with that, we were fortunate to be surrounded by some wonderful people in the end and, and onwards now who very much respect and, and love us for who we are um, and don't blame us for the actions of a violent individual who committed a violent act. Right. And speaking of people that you thought were um, maybe have been on your side, and since you are, you are an attorney too, um, and dealing with the laws, 
trying to get legislation passed, we have people who are running for office that have said some quite remarkable things in about women who are being raped. And here's something that I want you to comment on. Um, this mm-hmm. is a person who's running for uh, – <laughs> he's actually – he's at CPAC right now. I'm going to play this clip because he, is, he was on uh, – this is Mike Bevins on the on Glenn Beck radio program. Okay. Whoops. If it'll play. <laughs> Let me uh, see if I can get it to play. Hold on. Maybe it's afraid to play. And it's why I'm in this race, because I do not see the future uh, American dream being offered to future generations in the way that it was to mine and those that preceded me. Let me just get this out on the table so we could just end this thing quickly, um, you know, in case this, this happens to be. But do you believe that rape is sometimes the way God works to create children? No. Okay, good. I just wanted to get that one out. Just, no, I, I don't have any burning desire to discuss the physiology of women at any stage in this campaign. Okay. So, and it's why I'm in this room. Okay, so... That was okay. the answer to that question. Um, I, I just kind of want to stand back and let you have at it. <laughs> well, I think one thing we have to think about is what are the questions that we're asking and why? Are we asking the right questions? Just think about it. When we see uh, war-torn uh, places in, in certain African nations, uh, in, in world and civil wars and issues like that, or in the Balkans, any other places in the world, we see people struggling along. We know sometimes rape is used as a way of perpetrating violence in, in an act of war. There are children conceived in that way. Now, are we stepping back and looking at that on, on a global scale? Are we looking at one another in our, our quick ability to judge and use that uh, within the American um, worldview and not seeing how this has been going on worldwide, you know, since the end of time, beginning of time and, and onwards, because we seem to not allow us to make a judgment to walk away from dealing with the elephant in the room. Women are being raped. Of course, pregnancies can result from that. We know this. Um, finding the right questions to ask, I think, uh, especially when with political candidates or people in public office, I think that's going to be, a, I wonder what's the right question for them to respond with. Is there really an answer you can give when there's a question being framed in a limited context is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, to, to, I, because we all know where that question came from. It came from um, the obvious media blow-up over Todd Akin and having, mm-hmm. having him say things on television that, uh, that ended up ending his, his political campaign at the time about okay. the situation of women conceiving in rape. And, and it seems to be that the reaction that potential politicians or candidates running for office uh, want to, the direction they want to run in when they get cornered with those types of questions is to really throw the baby literally under the bus at this point in time. Throw rape conceived children and, and mothers who conceive in rape under the bus for the sake of not sounding like a, 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 a target for the mainstream media. I mean, is this is this what we're going to see from now on? I don't know. How would you how would you address um, those po- potential candidates 
those candidates for office, and how, how should they answer that rape question, even if it comes from a person like Glenn Beck on his radio program? Well, it doesn't matter who's asking the question. It matters how you answer it and if you're being straightforward or if you're dancing around it. If you're somebody who's uh, running for public office, you have to ask the question, first of all, are you doing it for yourself or are you doing it to serve? Um, I think there's a shortage of people who want to be people who serve when they lead in any way, shape, or form. So um, that being said, the response to comments, I'm sure that has created a lot of debate and discussion among people about how they will respond Monday morning quarterbacking over the statements that are made. If you want to know what I think about the statements that he made, I you know, can respond to that if you'd like. But those were done in the past. That, that would be a, yeah, well, that would, yeah, it is in the past. It is in the past. Um, I am just referring to how how candidates should conduct themselves from here on out because they're trying to run away um, and not be the next Todd Aiken, but instead they're saying wow. things like, like as you heard, which is, first of all, Mike Bevan didn't answer the question that was posed to him, but second of all, the implication by Glenn Beck asking was there was a right answer. You, you uh, <laughs> Having phrased that question that way, um, who could say mm-hmm. no? It's a setup. I think that um, the important thing is for handling kinds of questioning on it with some common sense and trying to build a bit of common ground and moving forward would be a good approach to take. Obviously, um, there's a lot of dancing around the subject. It is something that's not comfortable for a lot of people to talk about. It's taboo. People don't want to talk about sexual mm-hmm. violence. They don't want to talk about rape. Uh, of course, you know, the situation of somebody becoming pregnant through rape is going to be specific to women. Men don't get pregnant. So you can narrow down the argument that much at least, even though men do get sexually abused and sexually assaulted, when we're focusing on what's happening to the women. So that being said, that can give them a little bit of guidance on how to address it. Um, I, don't think, I, I don't think that there's anything I can say good about the statements that Aitken made that blew up in the media because I disagree with what he said and I, and I don't like it at all and... I'm sorry that he made that error. All right. Hey, Thomas, are you there? I learned that I have to ask whether he has a question Leticia. or not. I can't really see him. Yes. <laughs> Leticia? Yes. Leticia, I am here. I'm yeah, just working. I can hear you. All right. But I was on mute. Do you have a question was... for our No. Well, actually, I do. I do have a question for our guest because, you know, in light of more than a few pastors, are so-called men of God, referring mm-hmm. to babies conceived in rape as demon seed, mm-hmm. what's your thoughts on the, those words coming out of their mouth, especially one bishop, Paul S. Morton, out of, I believe he's out of Atlanta or someplace, in Georgia. What's your comment on that? Oh, I think that it's a bit sad to look at any innocent child that has an immortal soul and call them a demon seed. It's a very sad situation, and it's, um, it's, it's very disappointing. I don't think it's accurate at all, and I hope that that will eventually open up a way of, of seeing things in a different way for the individual that holds that belief and, and makes that kind of a statement. Very disappointing. Right. And then just kind of a just kind of a follow up question for you. Um, 
I have I've had this debate with people who talk about the incrementalism versus pro-life legislation without exceptions. And this is my stance on that because being being um as your as your child was um I was also born under the exceptions clause. I I coined a term called the exceptions clause. And okay. Here's the thing. I I understand those who are pro-life with the exception where they're coming from. I absolutely positively don't agree with I don't agree with um legislation that has exceptions in it. And here's the reason why I don't agree with it. It's because you know when they say to us, well, you know, it's for the greater good of the cause. I'm thinking, okay, so basically you're saying that it's okay to, you know, for a few to sacrifice a few to save the many. I under I understand what they're saying there, but my question right. is this: Okay, if that's what you're saying, while while pursuing legislation with that stuff in there, even though I absolutely despise it and don't agree with it, why are you not working on legislation here on the other side that all all life? And the argument that I got, well, you won't get any legislation passed if you if you focus on this, this, this and this. And my counterpoint to that would be the the pro abortion side, they are working on contingencies for every single thing that we throw out there. Even when we cut, like all the 20-week um, abortion bans that they had, they they got them all overturned. They had contingencies for everything. So I look at it like this, and this is, and this is my question to you, and tell me what you think. If we're going okay. to pursue those kind of bills, why don't we well, also have a contingency plan pursuing other options as well, and don't just throw the bait, those of us who were born under the exceptions clause, under the bus. I think you raise a very good point. I think one of the questions that uh, comes to my mind is when can we find options, uh, which I thought was interesting, you mentioned exceptions, uh, looking at options to build common ground where I uh, mentioned there are exceptions that, of course, are born and raised and and live a very good life and are very wonderful people, such as my daughter. Um, I have to say is an amazing person. I love with all my heart. One of the things I found great about some of the legislation that we need to maybe open our eyes to and maybe see a different horizon and get a better understanding of, uh, the legislation that we had passed for people who wanted to see about protecting uh, the children of rape survivors, okay, like we did here in Florida, it deals with the children after they're born. So... Once you have something in place like that that provides that kind of protection, it will provide an opportunity and, and, and make it more free for someone to choose life in a situation like that. This was passed by people on the pro-life and the pro-choice sides of the issue in Florida. It was passed unanimously. It was passed with bipartisan support. So there is a way to have common ground and build something moving forward as far as you want to call exceptions or exceptionality clauses. Maybe there's other opportunities for that that we haven't explored. I appreciate your answer there, because I know there's common ground, but uh, but 
people have to be willing to pursue that common ground because, you know, like I said, for me, because it's personal, I will never agree, I will never believe in um, legislation with the exceptions in it, but I won't oppose it. It doesn't mean I'm happy with it because the way I look at it from a personal standpoint of view, you're telling me, or that would be the equivalent of telling your daughter, her life wasn't important based on how she was conceived. Does that make sense? So that's why I, I never... Clear as go mud. Ahead. Go ahead. I said clear as mud. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, it's... it's uh, I don't know. I just I just know we can work together, but we also it can be done. Cause here here's the ultimate point of it all. Roe v. Wade was not done in incremental steps. It was not. A lot of people think it was. It wasn't. They per, they pursued one case. That's all they did. They didn't try it in the states that had. Um, that had restrictive abortion laws, even though there are some who are saying on our side, well, it should be a state's right. Folks, it was a state's right, but you didn't say nothing when the federal government through the U.S. Supreme Court overturned all the state's rights to uh, regulate abortion. But now you want to say it's a state's right to keep from having to deal with the moral issue that um, uh whole entire industry is destroying lives based on how those babies were conceived or whether or not it's an inconvenience or they're handicapped the wrong race or whatever. That's what that industry is about. And until we can truly articulate that and point it and put it back squarely where it belongs in their corner, the fault lies with the struggle. Because it's a it's a major front. It's not just legislative. It's it's in the churches. It's on the it's on the sidewalks, prayer counseling, and uh, reaching out to those women. But there's so much infighting now that it's like, what do we do? We gotta stop beating each other up, you know. So that's my that's my point. <laughs> so I see your point. I see your point. You have a but now it's just some of the history of, you know, a Supreme Court case comes down and changes things and different things going on in different states. And when you were discussing that, I couldn't help thinking about, you know, historically as well, like the Dred Scott case, of course, and other states' right. rights issues mm-hmm. that had to deal with the slavery issue. And, um, and and then eventually things change and evolve as, you know, this is a very growing uh, American nation that has a lot of uh, wonderful things and amazing people that, when they get their minds uh, made up to work on solutions and find a solution, uh, they tend to be able to push through until that happens. So that's something we can always that's have hope right. in, right? Yes, amen. I agree. Thank awesome. You. And if there's anything that we have repeated um, many times on this program, uh, is that abortion in, in all its forms is a fundamental form of slavery. It has. It is. And I don't shy from shy about be shy about saying that because you know in a lot of my presentations I share that freely with audiences saying that fundamentally the African slave trade, slavery in America, and abortion today um, are the same thing. 
and uh, we need to deal with that. We really do. You there, Lucia? Hello. Yeah. Hello. Hello. Okay. Did you hear me? Sorry. Yeah, we lost you for a minute. Okay. Taking a bit. (laughs) All right. Well, um, I thank you so much for being on True Life Fridays Radio. I think this has been a tremendous interview. Uh, I look forward to hearing from more of the women that are part of Hope After After Rape Conception. Uh, I think everybody's story is valuable to talk about because the more people understand that women choose life for their children and they don't fall into the stereotype that, oh, if I were raped, I know that I would want an abortion, or if so-and-so were raped. You know, just kind of blanket making that judgment. And they meet people who made made choice a choice for life and don't regret it at all i think that will overturn this idea in people's minds that abortion should be uh made available for women who have been raped it should be legal it should be promoted it should we it's, i think it's a prejudice we need to get over right i agree right so i look forward to having more of the women that are involved in Hope After Race Conception on to share their stories. And thank you so much for being here, being first from that organization. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Thank Have you. Thank you. Have a good thank night. You. you too. I should say I made a mistake. She is technically not the first. Angie, who I am pretty sure is listening, sorry, uh, is was so close to my heart. Um, she's been there for so much of of this program and you know I think I'm so glad that she is living in the same state and we can talk and share her story and um, she's been such an awesome awesome educator from the moment you know on for the cause of life I think every woman deserves to have their story told what has happened to them what has happened to their kids Um, and so yes so I repeat that I look forward to having more of these uh, beautiful women share their story on with us it is a privilege of mine. I know it's a privilege of Thomas's and Melissa's as well uh, to have them on True Life Fridays Radio. Uh, a quick break, and we'll come back with the stupidest thing ever. Put your hands up, open wide. Put your hands up side by side. Age don't matter, like race don't matter, like place don't matter, like what's inside. Let the kick drum kick one time. Breathe out, let your mind unwind. Eyes on the ceiling, looking for the feeling. Wide open, let your own eyes shine. Yes, where the fight begins. Yeah, underneath the skin. Beneath these hopes and where we've been. Every fight comes from the fight.
You are listening to Pro-Life Fridays Radio, now become True Life Fridays Radio. You have joined the right place. I am your host, Letitia Wong. I am on air with my good friend and co-host, Thomas Smith. Boy, we have had a busy day today. We have had a busy, busy day, and it's been awesome. I want to let everybody know who is listening to join our new Facebook page, called True Life Fridays Radio, and join us on Twitter at TLF Radio for our latest updates. We do retweet a lot of things that are happening in the pro-life community uh, just for your information and also to help spread the word that, you know, life is the right choice. It is really the right choice. You can't go wrong in saving babies. It seems like such an obvious thing to say, but I guess we have to say the obvious nowadays, don't we? Yes, ma'am. So, well, as it, um, but thanks, that's why it should yeah. be. That's why it should be. That's so. why what? That's why that's what? That's the way it should be. That's the way yeah. it should be. <laughs> that's right, and I want to thank uh, former guests of mine and – a uh, good friend, Carrie Michael Bogue, who had tweeted this to me uh, that it's kind of an addendum to to the Cecile Richard story that uh, we talked about earlier, both this week and last week. And that is, guess who disagrees with Cecile on her on her determination when life begins. Because she had said, for her children anyway, life began when she delivered them. Guess who who disagrees with her? You'll never guess. But guess anyway. Uh, Jesse Jackson? Al Sharpton? Well, yeah. (laughs) If we're talking... We're talking from a long time ago. Uh, Al Sharpton? I'm not sure Al Sharpton ever. But at one point in time, Jesse Jackson, before Jesse Jackson, the modern, came about. Oh, yeah, that's but true. But I'm thinking, I'm thinking a little bit more closer, a little bit closer to Cecile's circle of influence. Uh, I have no clue. Tell me. Okay. Wow. So... Guess what he dug up uh, this week and tweeted it out to me, or tweeted it out to everybody, but specifically he wanted me to know about it and tagged me in a post. It Cecile Richards disagrees with planned parenthood over when life begins. Amazing, isn't it? Oh, wait, 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 wait. Stop. Time out. Stop the presses. Isn't she the CEO of the company, and she disagreed with her own organization? How does that work? Apparently so. And, yes, she how is that, head of that organization. How does that work? How does that work? We dug out a, a pamphlet from Planned Parenthood Federation of America from decades ago, and it is talking in a pamphlet about birth control how women should have um, easy access to safe and reliable birth control. And there's a question on this pamphlet that was uh, 
also distributed by Planned Parenthood League of Iowa. So it's, it was distributed by Planned Parenthood Federation of America, and then also in Iowa, that's where it was released. It says, um, it specifically asks a question about birth control. It says, is it, meaning birth control, is birth control control pills? Is it an abortion? And the answer is surprising because the answer they give is definitely not. Birth control is not an abortion. That's what I'm saying. Definitely not. An abortion requires an operation. It, meaning abortion, kills the life of a baby after it has begun. Wait, wait a minute. But I'm not done. But I'm not done. She's not done. It goes on to say, it, meaning abortion, is dangerous to your life and health. But I am not done. It, meaning abortion, may make you sterile so that when you want a child, you cannot have it. Hmm. It go, the last hmm. sentence says birth control merely postpones the beginning of life. Well, that's not really true, but uh, it is a startling admission here, what they're saying about abortion. It kills the life of a baby after it has begun. It is dangerous to your life and health. It may make you sterile so that when you want a child, you cannot have it. Planned Parenthood Federation of America, ladies and gentlemen. And that was the stupidest thing of the day. No, no, no. That wasn't the stupidest thing of the day. I've got one that that beats that pretty good. I just wanted to point that out because, you know, however things have evolved at Planned Parenthood where they have had to defend abortion, over the years Planned Parenthood, cash cow, has become abortion. They're not going to say nasty things about it anymore. And this is the truth. The truth is in history. And people need to know. Right. When Planned Parenthood discovered they could make all kinds of cash, hands over fist, abortion at one time was not considered the preferred method of birth control. Um, abortion is a form of birth control, but they, what they wanted women to do was go on the pill, and as far as the pamphlet was concerned, have women plan their births and plan their pregnancies. And they discouraged abortion as a form of birth control at one (laughs) point in time. But when they found out they could charge women for it, things changed. They established a huge conflict of interest for themselves and and then went with the money. So that's why Cecile Richards today can't say when life begins. But to show you the most, the stupidest thing ever today, it is all kinds of respect for the music industry and big name artists as uh, (laughs) 
You're going to love this. I'm just going to play this. And keep in mind the tone of voice that, that you hear this in. They sang about them to the world. And the world had never heard anything like it. When Aretha first told us what R-P-E-C-T meant to her, she had no idea it would become a rallying cry for African Americans and women. And then everyone who felt marginalized because of what they looked like or who they loved, they wanted some respect. Uh, our, how, does, how does that go? R S P. R S P E S T S T D. Yes, R S T D. R E S T D. S T D. So. Uh, even when our president is trying to pay his R-E-S-P-E-C-T to people that sing the song, spelling it R-E-S-P-E-C-T, can't get it right. And he just keeps going and rolls over and has no idea why people are laughing. That's that's how you spell respect. <laughs> so So let me get this right. He spelled it R E S T E C T. Respect. Uh, he spelled it. Forgive me, I don't have the clip queued up. When Aretha first told us what R P E C T. R R S P E C T. R S V S T D. I keep hearing STD from him because, I, you know, STD, STD, STD. Um, I think there's a V in there, too, STD, VD. Uh, so well, he has. That's the well, stupidest thing given, ever, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, Letitia, before you go, let me add to that just real quickly. He has given a nation a liberal STD. So there you go. Oh, oh, oh. All right. You are right. You are right. Have a good night, everybody. Thank you for joining us on the new, all-new True Life Fridays radio. I will see you next week. We will see you too, Thomas, next week. Have a good weekend. <clears throat>